Well, good morning. As we come to God's Word and we seek to discern what God is saying to us through this parable and through His Word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that Your written Word of Scripture may now and always be our rule. Your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and Your greater glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As Peter's already said, we're continuing this morning to focus on Luke's account of the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. And Luke's aim in writing was to strengthen the faith of believers and to commend the preaching of the gospel to the whole world. As I guess most people will know, Luke was the only Gentile author in the whole of Scripture, and that therefore this will have been of vital importance to him, that the message of Jesus was for both Jew and Gentile. And as you look at Luke's Gospel, one of the things you notice is that he includes more stories than any other of the Gospels. And these stories come in the form of what we've come to think of as parables. Our word parable comes from the Greek parable, if that's how you said. I haven't a clue, but that's how it's written down in English. Well, and that word means in the Greek, placing beside. And it thus means a comparison or an illustration. And Jesus regularly used stories like this to make a point, either drawing on the natural world around him or from situations from daily life that his listeners would instantly and automatically recognize. But to get the point across, people had to be willing to listen and to be open to the truth. And sadly, too often, this was not the case. Which on one occasion prompted Jesus to say, quoting from Isaiah 6, verse 9, I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. It wasn't that he didn't want people to understand, he longed for them to do so but he was simply stating the sad truth that those not willing to receive his message will find the truth hidden from them. And some of the stories are prompted by someone coming up to Jesus and simply asking him a question. Think Good Samaritan, which is in response to someone coming up to say, who is my neighbor? But the parable of the shrewd manager, which is our focus this morning, we're told was directed to the disciples. But I believe, when we read the whole thing, that a wider audience was in mind. And to be honest, I've always found this a very difficult story to get my head around. So I think what it, 
which very important that we try and tease out its essence and get to the point that Jesus wanted to get across. Because here we see this manager, he'd mishandled his employer's affairs, he'd been found out and was about to be sacked. But, instead of going quietly, he decided to use the situation for his own ends. Even if it meant cheating, his employer, have to say, not the most auspicious start. To prepare for his future, he went round and he discounted the debts owed to his employer in order to put the debtors under obligation to himself. And as this story relates to 2,000 years ago in a different country and a very different culture, it is not surprising that disagreement through the commentaries, when you read them, is there for all to see. Disagreement about what is really going on. Was he really giving away what belonged to his employer, or was what was really happening, he was writing off interest payments that he wasn't entitled to charge? For going round originally, <coughs> the manager may have overcharged the debtors, which was a common way of getting round the Mosaic law which prohibited charging interest to fellow Jews. Deuteronomy 23.19 says this, Do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. So to reduce the debts, he may have returned the figures to their original amounts, which would both satisfy his employer, as he would get what he was entitled to, and put him in the good books of the debtors. Whichever of these it is, the point remains the same. And with these parables, it's the point that matters. He was shrewd enough to use the means at his disposal to plan for his future well-being. As Jesus said in his summary, I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. So when it's all gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In other words, what I think Jesus is saying here is that God's people should be alert to make the most of what he's given them. To support those in need, for in the future they will show their gratitude when they welcome their benefactors into heaven. In this way, worldly wealth may be used wisely to gain eternal benefit. And the key to this is the way that the wealth is used. It's not the amount. As Jesus himself said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest 
with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And as Jesus was speaking these words into the culture of his time, we realize how relevant these words still are to us today as issues of integrity and trust are at the heart of our public and private lives. In the search for a new prime minister, the issue of trust has been at the heart of the debate. Can what people say they will do be trusted? And is integrity at the heart of the process. And it's not just politicians, we can't just push it out to them, but this is an issue for all of us in all areas of life. And it is at this point that Jesus gets to the very nub of the matter, the core of it, echoing words he had spoken in the Sermon on the Mount. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here we see the stark choice and come to discover the original audience for this story. For we see right at the end of the passage we read that it is the Pharisees who are listening. The Pharisees of the time were an unofficial but powerful pressure group whose aim was to purify Israel through intensified observance of the Jewish law and were constantly in conflict with Jesus. And from their reaction, it is obvious that these words hurt. They were lovers of money and proud of their status. They justified themselves in the eyes of the people, but God knew what was in their hearts and which master they served. Whatever front they put up, and however they presented themselves to the world to impress others, God sees. He knows. This reaction is in response to a story. A little later in his Gospel, Luke tells us of a situation where this plays out in the life of a young man and where the same issues are raised for him and also for us. The story of the rich young man is one of the most famous and poignant stories in the Gospels. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. 
All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. In Luke's account, as we've just heard, he's described as a ruler, which meant he was probably a member of an official council or court. And he was obviously really keen to see Jesus. We're told that he came running up to be close to him. And he had in his heart a very important question to ask. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In asking the question in this way, he exemplifies the religious attitude. It was seen in the Pharisees, who were so hot on outward appearance and attitude, and can so easily exist in our churches today. For this man is full of self-confidence, sure that eternal life is something that lies within his own power to attain by doing and being seen to do the right things. So when Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, he can reply with utmost sincerity, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And he would have believed it. As for him, keeping the law was a matter of external conformity. That the law also required inner obedience, which no one can fully satisfy, seemed to have completely passed him by. So here we see this rich, self-satisfied young man who honestly thought he was doing the right thing, whom Jesus looks on with compassion, and he's standing there waiting to be commended publicly for his piety. And in an instant, his life is turned upside down as Jesus makes the most unexpected response. Quite a few years ago now, when I was doing my theological training, I spent four very challenging but very rewarding months working with the chaplaincy team at the RUH. I would do regular ward rounds with Chris Roberts, the senior chaplain, who would often describe people's situations by saying that sometimes God puts his finger in the pond of our lives and gives it a little stir. I'm sure most of us can empathize with this. But in the case of the rich young man, what Jesus said to him wasn't a little stir to unsettle him. This was a bombshell which should have shattered all his illusions and the sense of who he was. One thing you lack, oh, not bad, only one, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And when you've done that, 
come and follow me. Wow. He and everybody listening must have been utterly shell-shocked. And he was stood there looking absolutely gobsmacked. Nothing could prepare him for this. But Jesus, in his love for him, had discerned that his primary problem was his wealth. And therefore, the remedy was to get rid of it. There's no suggestion that Jesus' command to him applied to all believers, but only to those who have the same spiritual problem. Like the choice between the two masters, the rich man had a choice between treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. The treasure in heaven is the gift of eternal life or salvation and cannot be earned by self-denial or outward law-keeping. But it is a gracious gift of God to be received by following Jesus and giving him the first place in every aspect of our lives. And in giving away his wealth, the young man would have removed the obstacle that kept him from trusting in Jesus. But he couldn't do it. His face fell, his shoulders slumped, and he turned and walked sadly away. And this tragic decision, this life-defining decision, showed that he had a greater love for his worldly possessions than for life in Jesus. And the root of the problem lay in his original question. What must I do? He wanted to be in control. And at that point, Jesus, we are told in Mark's Gospel, Jesus looked at him with love. Can we imagine for a moment ourselves standing there in the place of the rich man in that situation? As Jesus' loving gaze searches to the depth of our very being, beyond the front that we put on to the world, to the person we really are before God. What will he say to us? Is there anything preventing us giving our first place to him in our lives? Two weeks ago, if you were here, we thought together with Tim about another story of Jesus, the parable of the great banquet, which is a wonderful picture of the heavenly banquet to come. And you can find that in Luke chapter 14. And just think of all the wonderful things God has done to prepare for this. He has created this beautiful world for us to live in, to enjoy and take care of. Creation could have been bland and functional, yet God chose to lavish his love upon it through its infinite colour and variety, which is such a wonderful expression of his amazing generosity. 
It is a gift for us to receive as we have done nothing to deserve it. But God is the great giver. Two days ago on Friday, we visited the American Museum, which last year they began to redo the gardens. And it's possible some of you have been and seen it. And if you have, you'll know it's an absolute triumph. It's a riot of colour, shape and texture with stunning views out across the valley. And the new designer has reimagined it by reshaping the landscape to best reflect the beauty of the planting. And on a lovely sunny morning, it was a sheer joy to be there, to marvel at the natural beauty of creation and the creativity to display it at its best, both of which are gifts of our wonderful Creator God and a reflection of His character. But God goes way beyond this general gift as His desire is to be in relation with each one of us, to know us and to love us, and for us to know Him. Because of the way people turned against him, this was only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yet God in his generosity did not hold back. He was prepared to give his most precious son that we might have life in him, life in all its fullness. This is what the guests at the great banquet were invited to. But in the story, they give their excuses. They had better things to do. And with the rich young man, he allowed his wealth to get in the way and be more important. But God is a wonderful, generous God who longs to lavish good gifts upon us. And he invites us to the feast with him at his eternal banquet. But note, it's an invitation. Will we accept it? Or we will let other things get in the way and assume more importance? Jesus made this very clear when he said to the Pharisees, and by implication to the rich young man, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In the end, it comes down to a question of who is in control and what takes first place in our lives. When Jesus issues his invitation to follow him, do we respond like the rich young man and walk sadly away? Or do we echo the words of Isaac Watts' great hymn, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul.
my life, my all.